What role does unconscious bias play in our society? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss the unconscious basis of bias and what it means to our understanding of our society. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Henry Richards. Henry Richards, Ph.D., is a licensed clinical psychologist with over two decades of experience in the evaluation, assessment, and treatment of individuals in forensic and correctional contexts. He has managed large forensic and correctional programs and provided training and organizational consultation to states, counties, hospitals, as well as residential and outpatient programs. He has specialized experience and training in addictions, sex offender issues, and methodologies of personal and organizational transformation and change. He is also a novelist. Here's the interview with Dr. Richards. Henry, welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. Thank you for being our guest. Uh, good to be here. Great. Nice to see you again, Henry. Uh, hi, Ken. Henry, our subject is the unconscious basis of bias. And before we get too far into the weeds, I want to just take a minute and define some of the terms that I hear and that we'll be using because I'm hearing things like bias, discrimination, racism, white supremacy, and then, of course, the term xenophobia, which kind of rolls up uh, a lot of these ideas into the this notion of the stranger. Could you define some of these terms for us, please? Yes, and I think we might have to back up a little later because we just the, we said a mouthful when we say unconscious bias, unconscious. You know, two big concepts there. Right. But we're, we're starting with the bias portion, and I think that xenophobia is a good place to start. You know, that's that's basically fears, mistrust and sometimes dislike and antagonism toward people who are not your people. They're not like you. Right. Uh, and so it's about one's identity. I identify with this group of people, and I don't like, trust, feel comfortable with people who are different. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to sit at their table. I don't want them to marry into my family. I don't want them, you know, to, to the extreme, I don't want them in the same country. And that's not necessarily race. That could be... Irish versus Italians. Or, right. Religion. Yeah. Re right. Right. Christian versus Ireland. Muslim. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's xenophobia is, is sort of the opposite of ethnocentrism, which is seeing your culture as central and important and using your culture and your ethnicity as a way of centering your life. And it doesn't necessarily imply that you have fears and anxieties and hatred of others. It's just a very positive sense of your culture and what it does for you. And ethnocentrism is, I think, pretty much universal. And that that continuum of, of polarity between ethnocentrism and xenophobia, I think they're pretty much universal. In other words, right. people have ethnocentrism. And it sometimes, when it gets to extremes, it starts to border on xenophobia or when it's being their sense of being centered in a culture is under attack or eroding. They tend to start moving toward also 
distrusting, disliking other people. And you see that in America, because being the melting pot, we have all of these different ethnicities around us. And so Italian versus Irish, that was, you know, kind of a friendly rivalry, except in East Boston, if you're Irish and you wandered into East Boston, you'd be beaten for not being Italian. So it can go all the way over into the the harmful xenophobia right? if you let it. Well, you know, I'm originally from the Chicago area, and in Chicago, you, you can be beaten for being on the wrong block. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not your block, so what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baltimore, too. Absolutely. Right, yeah. right. What are you doing here? <laughs> but, but I think one of the things that we should add in there is that those two things, xenophobia, ethnocentrism, they're pretty much universal. And something new came into the world in the ancient world, which was cosmopolitanism. Mm. And that was the idea that, hey, we're really citizens of the whole earth and humanity, and that we're interested in other people. We're not just curious, but we have a second identity, which is the cosmopolitan identity. And it's not new in a sense. It's not certainly not since the in, the invention of America, it's dates really into the ancient world, right, um, right? Where many people became these, you know, citizens of the world, as well as I'm Greek, I'm Egyptian, I'm Hebrew, whatever. So those those things are have a constant play. But how does racism fit into this? Because racism really historically is only what about five, six hundred years old. Yes, I mean we can locate it in time. Where these other things I don't think you can locate, except for cosmopolitanism, I think you can start to locate that, something going beyond curiosity and interest in others to feeling, hey, there's, you know, there's really another way to identify that's broader than my own people. And, of course, the the in-between steps are like nationalism. It ends up being part of that. But uh, I think when we're talking about racism, it used to be referred to mainly as discrimination and prejudice. Right, right. And prejudice is this idea that people have dislikes, they have beliefs that other people are inferior, especially morally, that other people aren't as good, or that, and it's better that they be separate. They may have religious beliefs that say that God decided that there would be these different groups and they'd be separate. Or God has decided that some people will just not be as good as others, and that might be a class basis or something. And then racial prejudice, of course, is that having those beliefs along race lines or ideas of what you believe to be race. And initially in America, there are all these many races. Every every group was being considered a race. There, you know, the Italian race. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, this yeah. is back in the late 1890s and early 20s, uh, 1900s where every, all these people coming in were considered that each group was a race. And there's a famous case of a psychologist who invented the intelligence tests. And the way he scored the test was by taking people who were from Western Europe and comparing their scores to people in Eastern Europe. And any time where the people in Western Europe scored better, that was a good item. <laughs> right. <laughs> so by definition the people in eastern europe were not as intelligent they didn't do as well <laughs> by definition by definition so that, that's that's a prejudice and and it led to discrimination and, and right now i'm just talking about the white immigrants coming in sure but when we're talking about racism almost everybody says they're not a racist 
Mm. And I think even people who are white supremacists don't really think they're racist. They just think, well, white people are supreme or they're, they're superior, they're better. And that's just the facts. That's just the way it is. Or it's the way it ought to be, which is right. sort of assertion yes. of, of their ethnicity. But I think racism was an ideology that got invented gradually over the centuries, starting in Arabia and in Europe, and then became a system, a worldwide system of thinking about people. Mm, and okay. thinking about people in terms of race, meaning something essentially different about people that was inherent to their bodies, to who they were physically and who they were spiritually, and essentially drawing a line across every aspect of existence around this idea of race. And this preceded the scientific understanding of DNA and really the the science that today challenges the whole concept of race and say well there is no such thing as race there are cosmetic differences in skin color or eye shape or hair texture but really those are very minor we are not different species we intermarry completely healthily unlike horses and mules horses and donkeys for example so this whole idea of race is now under question, but you're right. It's assumed worldwide. Yeah, I think part of the problem is we, it's hard for us now to think of race without thinking of racism. Right. And I, right. I think in the ancient world, people recognized people were different races, and they essentially meant ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. That, that's essentially what they meant. And so... Uh, yeah, because the English would talk about the Irish race. Uh, and, 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 and genetically, exactly. they're about identical. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then and certainly in Rome, for example, if an Ethiopian born in Rome and became a, a Roman citizen and occupied their place in Roman society, they were not considered of a different race. Okay. They were considered they Romans. Were Romans, yeah. Okay. Then they had history of where they came from, you know. So now Henry, you turned us on to an interview you conducted with Dr. Anthony Greenwald, a professor of social psychology at University of Washington, and he co-authored the book Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People with Dr. Um, Azrin Banaji. Forgive me if I'm butchering his yes. name. Yale University Social That's Psychology. Her, yeah. uh, oh, her. I'm sorry. Okay. So they maintain that otherwise, quote, good people who wouldn't ever consider themselves to be racist, sexist, ageist, etc., nevertheless have hidden biases about race, gender, sexuality, disability, status, and age. Would you explain the fundamentals of their discoveries? Yes, I think that their goal in writing this book was to take a huge body of research or 40 years of research and present it to the public in a way that made sense that research that came to the conclusions that we have these hidden biases related to things like race, like gender, and many other things, and that these things operate outside of our conscious awareness most of the time, but they have a big effect on our thinking and, our, and on our behavior, ultimately. 
and they wanted to present this basically like a medicine within a sweet syrup. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you have these things, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. In fact, very unlikely you would not have them. In other words, as part of living in a culture, you're going to develop these kind of biases. And their work is based on the idea that the mind, the human mind exists in two systems. One is a conscious system where you're aware of things. It's very slow and deliberate. And it is based on associations and pulling associations consciously and deciding logically, does that thing fit with that thing? All the thinking that we do is in that system. And then another system, which is very, very fast and doesn't work on those rules. It works immediately to make decisions that provide for our security and safety and that lead us toward rewards and avoiding punishment and pain. And that part of the the mind is we could locate parts of the brain that does that work. And the amygdala is one area that does that work. And the the, uh, amygdala is stimulated when we notice things that are possible rewards or possible threats. Right. Fight or flight kind of. Fight or flight or attraction. Ah, right. You know, something interesting. Something something interesting also will stick just something you're curious about, but things that might lead to a reward, I might actually win that promotion. Okay, your amygdala is going to light up when you think, well, I could do something and win that promotion. Or there's a, a beautiful member of the opposite sex or the same sex that I'm attracted to. Amygdala is going to light up. Okay. Uh, or things that seem like a threat, like I'm driving my, my same route to work and something out of the corner of my eye there's a movement. My amygdala draws my attention immediately to that. I'm out of my daydreaming. I'm, I'm out of listening to music and I pay enough attention to decide, is that a threat or mm. can I stay on autopilot? And what, what they're trying to present in, the, in this book, Blind Spots, is that we all have both of those systems and that the second system, this unconscious system, is often attuned to things like race or gender and influence our decisions. For example, the decision to admit musicians into the prestigious, most prestigious schools are very different if the musician is shown physically. You see the person's face. Oh, yeah, they're... I've I've seen that uh, that experiment. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's important uh-huh. in literature. When those interviews or, um, you know, debuts for acceptance or for a position in an orchestra are done uh, without a screen, mm-hmm. males overwhelmingly are appointed or selected. When it's done behind a screen, the ratio of males to females becomes about 50-50. Right. And more people of other ethnicities, like Asians, African Americans, yes, uh, yeah, yes, are selected. And, and yeah. essentially, that means that you've removed that visual component, and that second system works primarily on the visual component. It doesn't need words. It doesn't need a verbal explanation of what's going on. And how does this relate? How does this relate to death anxiety? We're all informed by Ernest Becker denial of death. How does this concept of the unconscious bias relate to death anxiety? Well, I think it relates to it through the concept of threat. 
the death anxiety, obviously that's going to be connected to a, a system that alerts you to threats that might lead you to death and including the idea of death, which is threatening. Even though death might be 30, 40, 50 years in the future, it's not like someone's holding a knife at your throat. It's not the fear of imminent death, but it's the dread of inevitable death. Yes, and the fear of pain and death gets attached to things that are symbolic of pain and death. So the idea that my culture is under attack, well, that doesn't mean I'm going to die. But from the standpoint of self-esteem and meaning, it does threaten my existence as a person of meaning. In other words, now I feel that I'm going to eventually die and I won't even have my culture that intact to sustain the meaning of my whole life. Wow. And yeah. now it's now it's an immediate threat. It's like the removal of the Confederate monuments in the South. Some people take that as a threat to who they are, as you know, as their self-esteem, their right to a heritage, and they feel deeply, often in terms of anger and resentment toward others who want to remove these things, that it's an outrage that these things would be removed, even though they were only put in place uh, sometimes as late as the 19th. 30s and 40s and even the 70s, these uh, monuments to the Confederacy in place, many people, not many as people, some people in the South respond as though it was there forever mm. and as, as though it was previously universally accepted. And all these things are not, that's not true historically, but it does affect how they feel. And in terms of black men, a black male face, can that provoke these similar implicit associations you're talking about? Right. We're getting there into what really was the method behind the science. And the method behind the science often used faces and still does. So the way the what's called implicit attitudes test works when it's looking at attitudes toward different kinds of people Often faces are shown. So an individual sits down and they're, they're shown faces and they're asked to pair a certain kind of face, let's say male, with a certain kind of word, let's say words that represent strength. And then they're also asked to pair words with photographs of females with words that represent weakness. And at the same time, they're asked to, to switch. I mean, during the course of the task, they're asked to switch. Now, when they are, they see a face that is male, they're supposed to choose the word that indicates weakness. Hmm. Or they see a, a woman's face, they're supposed to choose the word that indicates strength. And what the data shows is when people have the belief or attitude that men are stronger and women are weaker, their responses are much slower when they're, they're asked to choose the word that goes against their underlying belief. So it's this completely unknown to them, unconscious response. It's just, but the test is, is recording their, their split second decision or how long it takes them to make the decision. Yes, and, and you're asked to do it fairly rapidly. And in fact, you're, at, you're doing it so rapidly that only that second system that 
behaves very quickly and makes decisions very quickly, that's the system that is primarily making the response. Wow. Okay. Uh, wow. The, the other system, you could slow, try to slow your responses down and you could be telling yourself, well, don't express a prejudicial attitude toward men and women. Don't do that. But you're responding so quickly that what we say that the differential between your speed on the attitude similar and attitude dissimilar responses, when that's large enough, we can say, well, you do have an implicit bias toward having this belief. And how does that work with black people, brown people, white people? Well, often what has been done is that the darker faces are paired with the word bad, for example, initially, and uh, lighter faces, white faces paired with the word good. And then those pairings are reversed and people are asked to continue to choose which word goes with that face. Does this, you see a face and does that word, does that face go with the word related to goodness or does it go with the word related to badness? And then you're, you're, you're given the reverse rule. You know, mm. you were worse. You were once using white faces to mean bad. Now we want you to use the white faces to mean good. And then the comparison is made. How different is it when you're asked to do this, the, let's say, white preference trials? How much faster or slower are you than when you're asked to doing the black preference, meaning black equal good preference trials? And in the United States, for the most part, I think it's around 80% of whites show a clear bias in favor of white is good and black is not good. So that means that most people have this bias. And how about the black people, black Americans or brown Americans? Black Americans have less of the bias, but most black Americans, and so if you just go by percentage, it's a lower percent, but many have a pro-white bias as well. Even though they're African-Americans. Even though they're African-Americans, they, they see white equal good and black equal bad. And then there's a larger percent among African-Americans who don't have a bias. Okay. And then there's a smaller percent, maybe 25% of blacks who have a pro-black bias. Wow. Right, right. It's not symmetrical between different ethnicities. Yeah. And I should say that I think the research indicates that the African-American white American biases aren't as strong as some other biases we see in the world, like Korean versus Japanese bias. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as measured by this test, it can be much stronger. But when we look at some areas, there's a stronger effect in the United States, and specifically around violence. These tests show that African-American male faces are very easily associated with weapons, crime, Guns, you know, violence, drugs, that association, drugs, that those yeah. are strong associations, even when the statistics, for example, with drug use, is that there's not much difference between the two uh, African American population and the white population, but drugs are much more easily relatable to, associated to black faces. And Henry, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, these biases come from a part of the mind that functions automatically and efficiently and does its work mostly outside of our conscious awareness. I'd like to ask, what's your take on bias and bigotry and white supremacy and racism 
from a psychological perspective? And how do you define these terms? Well, I think when we're looking at this implicit bias, we're looking at the individual's tendency to have automatic responses that are either positive or negative, or that may have uh, that may show bias, and that that varies in different degrees. And since in America as a whole, white Americans have a strong pro-white bias, they strongly on this test to show that they automatically respond that white white is good and they have a strong bias to th- responding that blacks and black faces especially black male faces are related to something bad and they might not even know that about themselves they probably wouldn't know it unless you take the test and if you take the test you might be told that and not believe it right you might be told like oh that test is wrong and you know it couldn't be true but that they have this outside of awareness and that it affects their behavior. And when we look at behaviors that that you can test easily, like do people who score as having a high white bias and a bias towards seeing blacks as negatively, will they associate with black people in the same way as people who have a lower bias? And what what we can find is that no, they don't. For example, in a place where people are allowed to just choose their seating, the people with the strong pro-white bias and strong black negative bias don't sit near black people. They sit further away. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they literally, you can measure how far they sit away. And that that leads to, well, isn't that interesting? It's sort of like, why would people segregate? Well, because there's people who feel just automatically that they feel uncomfortable approaching someone of a different race and being near them. And this is all automatic. It's all automatic. And I think what we're seeing in the implicit attitudes test is the result of centuries of racial thinking and racial laws and uh, societal rules. It's nothing natural to these people. It's something that they've developed over their lifespan by just being part of our culture. So we're seeing an artifact of our culture that varies uh, from individual to individual based on their experience based on their education, their upbringing, their upbringing. Yeah. If you had grown up in my household in the 1950s, 60s, you would be a white supremacist. The only reason I'm not is because I went to integrated schools and lived in an integrated neighborhood. Eventually, you know, the neighborhood changed as I was growing up. The school changed as I was growing up. And then I had black friends. And then I had a cognitive dissonance between the reality and the schoolyard and the classroom and the street and what I was being taught by my father and grandmother at home. Right. And you you also probably had a strong urge to have some sort of coherence in your belief systems. Right. Yeah, you had to to put those. Yeah, you had to put those together. Right. And, and not everybody does. Uh, many people are taught, well, you know, your belief system doesn't have to be coherent. You right. believe it because that's what your grandma and grandpa <laughs> believe. That's right. You know, if, it's incon- if it's incongruent, then just forget about it. You know, go ahead and believe it. Yeah. Uh, but as you get people who are educated, more exposed to the world, they want to have coherence and they'll, they'll notice that, oh, that attitude that I was exposed to and believed it's not coherent with my other beliefs. Like we should treat people fairly or that the 15 
black friends I have, or there's something wrong with them. That that's incongruent with what I've experienced. And I, and I grew up in the civil rights era, right, where the whole society was going through. Everything that. was up for grabs at that point. So challenging your parents and grandparents' beliefs, well, that was cool. Then, right, that was a, a generational thing to do. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think this thing about yeah, go the, ahead. The, the, the question of how this fits into things like white supremacy is that it doesn't in a way, because what we're looking at is these are the automatic responses of individuals. And they're probably people who have a fairly weak automatic bias in favor of whites, but they believe in white supremacism mm, wow. supremacy because it's an ideology. It's an ideology in the same way that, some of our the strongest ideologies we've had were things like communism, socialism. White supremacy is an ideology that white people are better, should be dominant, should be in control, and that coherent with that, things should be done to make sure that that happens. It's a an ideology. So we talk about white supremacist regimes like the apartheid regime in South Africa or Rhodesia the laws and the social rules were that whites must always be in charge. They all must be superior and the races must be separate because otherwise you can't maintain that. That's a specific ideology. Whereas in the Jim Crow South, there was a de facto practice of racial discrimination based on racism and the idea that whites and blacks are different and whites are superior, but it was, generally less systematic and less overt an ideology in the United States. Now, certainly there were people in the South who worked with the apartheid regimes, the American South, worked with the apartheid and Rhodesian regime. They were part of a international white supremacist ideology in a similar way that the communists International was a, a worldwide web of people who believed in that ideology and acted together. And we still have elements. In fact, it's interesting to try to track this. How many white Afrikaners and white supremacists, because not all the Afrikaners were supremacists, and white Rhodesians moved to the American South? Wow. Okay. I don't think many of them moved to Detroit. Okay. but they actually had connections with the the white supremacist ideology so that ideology of white supremacy to the extent it was codified in the united states it was something for example that the nazis studied when they did the nuremberg laws they studied the jim crow laws in the south and in fact the nazis decided that the jim crow rule that one drop of black blood made you black, that that was too extreme. To, to, to them, they said, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And they came up, because we know people, that's just too extreme. So what they came up with is if, you're, if you had three or four Jewish grandparents, you were Jewish. Oh, wow. Yeah. But in the United States, when people codified that rule in the South, it was, if we can find that you have any black heritage, then you're black. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you and, see that that's an idea. It's an okay. ideology versus even an emotional reaction. And and we know that in the South, black people and white people often felt comfortable with each other, yeah. even though 
many of the whites held this this supremacist idea. And do they, you do you do you mind my asking, for the sake of our listeners who can't see us, you identify as a person of color. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a, I'm African American. And, you know, culture, history. Right. I'm a light-skinned black person. My father's very dark, and my mother is very light. Right. In my so, family, we call you racial ambiguous. Like my wife and my kids are all people of color, but some are what they say racially ambiguous. Right. Like they could be Italian or Middle right. Eastern. They're, you know, not necessarily African American. Well, these ambiguities there, they lead to all sorts of things. Don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been, I had the experience of having my first date in a uh, theater in Southern Illinois. I told my date to meet me inside because I didn't want to buy her ticket. So so I I go inside and I, I, I see her and I sit down next to her and the usher came in and told me to move. Wow. I said, why? He says, you're sitting on the black people's side. Uh... And I said, oh, that was from the north, and I didn't know what the deal was. I didn't even know it was segregated. There was no sign out. But the, the theater was de facto yeah. segregated with blacks on one side and whites on the other. And he told me, you're on the wrong side. When I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm black. He, he said, oh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was quite a jarring experience for a uh, you know a kid from the from the Chicago area to, to go through. Henry, we're going to take a, a real quick break, folks. We are talking with Dr. Henry Richards about the unconscious basis of bias. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're back with psychologist Henry Richards talking about race, bias, and the unconscious. So, Henry, this is fascinating what you've been talking about because I've never really heard it delineated so clearly the difference between ideology, which is a conscious belief system, could be a constructed conscious belief system, and the unconscious bias that is that is revealed by these tests that you're talking about. I think that's an excellent way to look at it. It brings us to the question of stereotypes that we're guided by things that are outside of our awareness. And so we react to what our minds have created to explain the world in lightning speed, but what is the problem with stereotypes? Well, the problem with stereotypes is that they're often wrong. <laughs> right. And it, it basically leads to lazy thinking and to actions that are inconsistent with the reality in front of us. But we do all have various stereotypes, but we don't really have to use them without reflection. Ah, They're not automatic. Sure. Is there a kernel of truth to stereotypes? Well, you know, the social uh, science on this is interesting. And 
what what often happens is that if a group says that one group is is stingy and when you ask people in that group are you stingy they'll say oh no we're frugal (laughs) (laughs) so so there's some agreement there's something different about our uh the bias or the emphasis in our culture toward not wasting things but people who don't identify in the group might say those people tend to be stingy and the people in the group say, Oh, we're frugal. We're being responsible. Well, uh, we're Scottish. We're Scottish. Scottish. And we're, yeah. right? and we're frugal. That, that's, yeah. that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so there, there's that tendency that the real differences between people can be interpreted negatively or positively. And there, for example, there are people who are anti-Semites, but they say, I want, a Jewish accountant yeah, and a Jewish lawyer and right. a Jewish lawyer, because yeah. they're, they're using their stereotype yeah. Yeah. to, to guide behavior, but not a Jewish rock and roll singer. Right. Or, <laughs> or a Jewish uh, son-in-law. No, yeah. I don't want right, right, right. I, I want the, tw- so it's like they're, they're using it, that lazy thinking. And of course, if they do that, they're going to end up, if they do it uh, without further, just reflectively, they're going to make a lot of mistakes and, you know, yeah. So the the stereotype, the problem with them is not criticizing them and and expecting them to do all the work you should be doing with that first system, the conscious system. If people slow down and examine their stereotype, I believe that most women bosses are lenient. And, well, that's, that's good. It's a good stereotype. But I should really consider if that's true or not, before I take the day off without asking my, my female boss, <laughs> I may discover that she decides not to be lenient. And, you know, I've made the wrong decision based on not what I know about her, but just based on my just attitude toward women bosses. So wow. this gets us into the whole thing that our culture or society is struggling with, which is the implicit bias that police show to African-American men, unarmed African-American men like George Floyd, what prosecutors show that juries and judges show toward them that may or may not be ideological, depending on where they are, but may be implicit. That it might be a split-second decision on the part of a police officer to shoot an unarmed black man because of his stereotype, this implicit bias that's baked into us and it's baked into our system. But does everyone accept this? Is the IAT controversial? Well, it is. And of course it would be. The IAT, I think one of its most important values is that it undermines denial that the phenomenon of bias exists. Wow. It doesn't eliminate that denial, but, but the evidence from it undermines it. So for example, if I take the IAT and it shows I have a, a strong pro-white bias, I may not believe it, but I'm sure going to think, well, how did it turn out that way? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it seems to be true in all these other areas. And then I have to start thinking about myself. So I think that's a real advantage to it. But I think 
there's some legitimate basis other than just doubting the phenomenon of automatic responses. And that is, well, what do they mean? In other words, a person might have that bias and yet be reflective that I want to be fair. And if I'm dealing with someone of a different group, I remind myself, be fair. So you would say, well, that person, you won't see this bias showing up in all their behaviors. The opposite side of that, people who would say the IIT is going to redeem us would say, well, but when you're making split-second decisions, it will affect you. And if one of those decisions is to shoot or not shoot, if you're a police officer, then that unconscious bias becomes a life or death issue. Right. There have been many studies of police officers and simulated officers where people are trained that, you know, you're going to be an officer, you're going to be in a situation and, and they use video games basically. And they measure how many times a simulated white person is shot without a weapon and how many times a simulated black person is shot without a weapon. And almost invariably the more black men are shot without a weapon There have been a few studies that have shown, in fact, the reverse, where the police officers, there's one study in Spokane, where the police officers actually shot the white males more often. Mm. And it got much more play in the literature than it should have. And the reason why is that Spokane is not a representative police force. In other words, the, the, the minority group that m- most concern in Spokane are Hispanic Americans and Native Americans. There's a Black population in Spokane, but it's relatively small. So it's a really different world. Henry, we hear that conservative politicians are denying that there is a systemic racism in America. How does the IAT address that notion? Does it tell us anything about that? Well, it does tell us that things happen outside of our awareness, you know, that we don't have to be aware of things for them to affect our beliefs and affect our behavior. But like the ability to deny that the IET has significance, you can deny that the pattern of decisions and the pattern and structure of laws and society that affect non-white people, that those have nothing to do with any form of bias or discrimination. And if you insist on holding on to that belief, the only way your other beliefs can be coherent is that you'll believe there's something wrong with those people of color. In other words, if you believe that there is no systematic attempt to decrease the achievements of people of color and the rewards they get for their achievements, then you'll have to believe that they haven't achieved because essentially they're not working hard, they're not trying hard. You could also leave, uh, have a more of a historical perspective that no one clued them in on how to use this system. That would be one, another way. But essentially you're placing the fault with them and saying, well, no, since the system can't be biased, then it isn't biased. It's got to be them. And, yeah. Right. I have to say, I, I actually worked in a place where I was told essentially, by a white boss that I was going to be fired for saying that institutional racism existed. Wow. And my response was, 
you just gave me the best evidence of it. You said you're going to fire me because I say it exists. <laughs> and I was Perfect. luckily in a position to say, I don't think the governor will like that. <laughs> and he's, the governor was a white guy, too. But I said, I don't think he's going to like that, that you fired me. And so you can see how institutional racism exists there because he said, which is a systemic factor, he said, if you believe there's institutional racism and you think there's institutional racism is here in this institution and I'm the boss and I must be a racist. And I Whoa. said, well, all that logic, I, I don't know if any of that follows, but since you told me you might fire me, I'd have to say that there's something happening. What do you, how do you explain it? Yeah. Uh, that, the conversation didn't go any further. <laughs> let me, let me right. read to you a quote that I had referenced to you before we interviewed today. This is from a psychologist, Helen Kesebeer. She wrote an article called A Quiet Ego Quiets Death Anxiety. And she says, to be able to function effectively in the world, people need to keep the terrorizing knowledge of inevitable mortality at bay. This is accomplished through an existential anxiety buffering system, the key ingredients of which are a sense of value, meaning, security, and transcendence. These ingredients are oftentimes provided by self-esteem, faith in one's cultural worldview, and close interpersonal relations. So looking at this second point she makes, faith in one's cultural worldview, could that be described as implicit? bias that your your worldview which is not conscious your worldview is the last thing you would discover <laughs> right it's yeah. not conscious you believe in your heart that white people are exceptional let's say let's use exceptional instead of supreme mm -hmm. and say that they don't wish anyone any harm they never lynched anybody and don't intend to, but yet their worldview takes them in the direction that can cause harm to people by not allowing them to get a good job or a good place to live or some of the things that we've just talked about, you know, just being discriminated against in subtle ways or not so subtle. So do you accept this idea that a worldview is a defense against death anxiety? And how would you respond to that in, in terms of what we've been talking about? Well, yeah, I accept that idea that it can be a, a better or not so good defense against right. death anxiety. And in fact, your worldview might include elements that draw attention to death anxiety because the worldview is not well-structured or supported. In other words, if you feel that I'm not going to be safe unless my people are in charge, then you might draw attention to that. And then if that's the case, your worldview will constantly bring up fears of death or being made marginal, being marginalized. Okay, Henry, you shared with us a paper that you've written, and I want to make sure I get this title right because it's quite a mouthful. Uh, the paper is called From Blood Purity to Blood Rituals, Mythopoetic History 
of the concepts and rituals of white supremacy and racism. And the question is, is racism an inevitable aspect of humanity? No, (laughs) I think it, it isn't because it requires this system of ideology, which we could call white exceptionalism, white supremacism. It also requires a social system that reinforces it. It can't exist. It's a, it's a cultural social phenomenon. It can't exist on its own. It requires a history of accumulated actions and beliefs and uh, facts on the ground that support the beliefs. And it requires a mindset that is permissive about lack of coherence, permissive about intolerance. So all those things are necessary to really have a system of racism. And of course, we could call it like a caste system based on race. In order to have that happen, you need many, many things. And that's only has come into existence and has been in existence for about five to six hundred years and did not exist before. So, yes, I don't think it's, it's something that just is part of human nature. We're getting towards the end here. I like to try to end on a positive note, how can we make things better? For example, how can we introduce learning experiences that result in what's being called anti-racism? We know there are a lot of attempts to do that. And I think that part of a package of experiences would include interactions with people of different races. It would include learning about the exceptional exemplars that are of other groups. It would help to have people exposed to the realities of the counterexamples. But the implicit side, I think the part that implicit attitudes and knowledge about them would play is basically undermining the denial that this problem of race and bias and including religious bias, that it doesn't apply to you because it can be shown that most likely it does. And if, if a specific bias, like let's say the race or color bias is not strongly evident in the test, you'll, you'll be able to see that there's some other biases. Like you might believe that you like books uh, more than television. Well, there's an IAT that shows a lot of people who say that it isn't true. They really really like television more. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, Henry, this has been delightful. We've just scratched the surface of this. Could we come back and have another conversation with you at some point? Yeah, you're on the hook now, man. Oh, man. We have have thoroughly enjoyed this, though, and thank you so much for Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Henry Richards, psychologists, about implicit bias and all of these subjects related to it. Henry, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Henry. All right. Take care and happy spring. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Henry Richards discussing xenophobia, implicit white preference, ideology, racism, and possible hope. Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, I think Henry gave us a lot of things to think about. Yeah, a lot of subtle implications, that's for sure. I came away with three important ideas. Implicit bias is real, 
there's a difference between implicit bias and ideology, uh-huh. and racism today is not well understood. Right. I think those are the three big ideas here. Well, let's start with the first one. Implicit bias is real. To say that implicit white preference does not exist is, to me, just plain ignorant. According to Henry, about 80% of white Americans have an implicit preference for white people. About half of black people also prefer white faces. Right. So it's not at all unusual to find employers, bankers, real estate agents, and building owners, doctors, nurses, voters, judges, juries, and yes, police. The majority of Americans who would claim not to be racist, have an unconscious bias towards African Americans. Henry says this unconscious system is often attuned to things like race or gender. Hmm. I'm not saying implicit bias is a defense for murder of an unarmed black person. Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes, not exactly a split-second decision. But it is something that can explain some police shootings. And it is something that police need to know and understand in themselves. More training is needed on this subject for police, prosecutors, judges, and juries. And as Henry says, they have to remind themselves to be fair. That's right. Henry said the implicit association test undermines the denial that the phenomenon of bias exists. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Yeah, you can't really deny this anymore. Well, maybe you can't, but people are denying it. A lot of people are going to continue to. Yeah. Like, I'm sure Mike Pence knows about implicit bias. He's not a stupid man. He's not uninformed. But it's a question of politics. If his political opposition accepts it, then his side rejects it. They can't admit that there's implicit bias. They can't admit that there is systemic racism. If they did, they'd have to question the whole criminal justice system. But the widespread evidence of the IAT undermines the conservative denial of systemic bias. Henry once said, you get to coherence by excluding data that doesn't fit your system. We're talking about people who have a problem that they don't think they have and they don't want to have. As Henry said, almost everybody says that they're not a racist. Right. African-American male faces are very easily associated with weapons, crime, guns, violence, and drugs. And according to Henry, those are strong unconscious associations. You often hear that a shooting of an unarmed black person is the action of a bad apple. So we just have to get rid of the bad apples. Who are the bad apples? 80%? Yeah. Uh, That's a lot of apples. Right. Well, the decision to shoot someone is usually made in a fraction of a second. It's not a long, conscious, rational decision. It's more like a twitch. Right. And an unconscious split-second implicit bias may be the determining factor. Right. Now, the second idea you mentioned is is something I hadn't really thought about before. There's a difference between implicit bias and ideology. The first is unconscious and operates in an eye blink, and the second is conscious. Henry said that white supremacy is an ideology, that white people are better, should be dominant, 
should be in control, and that coherent with that, things should be done to make sure that that happens. Well, talking about ideology, it's safe to say that many liberals are consciously anti-racist while implicitly favoring white people. Right. Our liberal woke brethren are also rooted in ideology, and to them, if you're conservative and you have implicit bias, then you're a bad person. And white supremacy is something only bad people do, so therefore, I can't possibly have implicit bias. Yeah, and maybe this is where we all need a dose of humility. Yeah. Almost all of us are implicitly biased. Get over yourself. Agreed. We asked someone we know how they thought Donald Trump got 75 million votes, and their response was racism. Like all 75 million racists in this country, all voted for Donald Trump, and I guess by implication, all the non-racists voted for Biden. We asked our friend Jack Moscow to comment, and he said, I think if you did a study, you would find that half the Trump voters were racist and half were not racist, and half the Biden voters are racists and half are not racist, and that it's on a continuum. Right. It's not like either or, right. you know, on, off. And so, yeah, the, the neo-Nazi, triple K, white supremacists supported Trump, and Trump would not disavow them. Virulent racism is real, and it continues to exist in America, but that's a relatively small minority of voters. So, where is their hope? How can we make things better? We asked Henry how we can introduce learning experiences that result in what's being called anti-racism. He said, we know there are a lot of attempts to do that. And I think that part of a package of experiences would include interactions with people of different races. He said, it would include learning about the exceptional exemplars that are of other groups. It would help to have people exposed to the realities of the counterexamples. Well, I think that's a good idea. Now, you asked him if racism is an inevitable aspect of humanity, and he said no. He said, I think it isn't because it requires this system of ideology. It requires a mindset that is permissive about lack of coherence, permissive about intolerance. All those things are necessary to really have a system of racism. Racism is not inevitable. So, if the unconscious implicit bias may be hard to undo, then perhaps the conscious system of ideology can be addressed. Steve, this, this could take a really long time. Uh, maybe several generations. Unfortunately, but I believe incremental change is possible. So each generation is a little better than the last. Well, there's hope in that, at least. I, I agree. Important ideas. Very. So, folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash thehubimportantideas. We continue to be 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.